The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Christians the world over face an increasing number of potentially violent persecutors, whether it's the brutal jihadist in the Middle East, Boko Haram terrorist in Nigeria, or Hindu radicals in India. Recently, British Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt warned that Christianity faces being wiped out in the Mideast, and he said political correctness has prevented the proper discussion of this subject. Fifteen years ago, there were one and a half million Christians in Iraq, but less than 100,000 remain today. In the Gospels, Jesus warned his followers that if he was hated and persecuted, it's a guarantee we'll also be hated and persecuted. And it's not just Christians being targeted. Alarming patterns of age-old anti-Semitism are once again rearing their ugly heads with bombings of synagogues and other hate crimes. Today, we're giving an intercessory red alert to take our prayers and support of Christians and Jews to a new level. Shalom, I'm Christine Darig. Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world, and it's accelerating. That's according to an annual report by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. The commission called on President Trump to appoint a special advisor on international religious freedom to target top offenders with sanctions and to help finance the State Department with efforts to help houses of worship protect themselves. Also, according to former Pope Benedict XVI, Christians are the most persecuted group in the world, with over 100,000 Christians violently killed annually because of their faith. Furthermore, the World Evangelical Alliance claims over 200 million Christians are denied fundamental human rights solely because of their faith. Every year, the Christian organization Open Doors publishes a World Watch list of countries designated as most dangerous for Christians, with North Korea listed again as number one offender, followed by nine Islamic countries among the top 10. Nigeria is ranked number 12 most dangerous nation for Christians by Open Doors. Most Christians in the southern part of Nigeria live in an environment in which their religious freedom is respected. But Christians in the north, especially in the Sharia states, face discrimination and exclusion as second-class citizens. Christians with a Muslim background also face rejection from their own families and pressure to abandon Christianity. Unfortunately, most people have never even heard of the Armenian Genocide, but under the Ottoman Turks, Armenian as well as Ionian Greeks and Assyrian Christians became the targets of genocide with a death toll that approached two million souls. Historians say that there wouldn't be a Turkish nation without the ethnic cleansing of its Christian communities. The book, The 30-Year Genocide, documents Turkey's destruction of its Christian minorities from 1894 to 1924. 
For an example, an Armenian woman from eastern Anatolia, born in the 1880s, would most likely have seen her parents killed, her husband and sons massacred, and she herself would have been raped and murdered by 1924, or certainly she would have been deported. Well, former Israeli ambassador to the United States, historian Michael Oren, has noted that in the past 100 years, the Middle East Christian population has gone from 20% to less than 5%. In Israel, Christians are guaranteed religious freedom, but in other Mideast nations, Christians are enduring severe hardships. In Egypt, Muslim extremists have subjected the native Coptic Christians to beatings and massacres, resulting in the exodus of 200,000 Christians from their homes. In Iran, converts to Christianity face the death penalty. In Saudi Arabia, even private Christian prayer is against the law. In Arab towns in the West Bank, the Christian population has been reduced from 15% to less than 2%. Well, through the years, my husband and I have been privileged to minister in many nations on every inhabited continent, and we've visited most of the world's most persecuted people. But in the past decade, attacks against Christians have increased, and it's not impossible, but it's certainly more difficult to minister in these countries. It seems every day there's a new atrocity, and shockingly, the question is being asked, where is the outrage in the West against the annihilation and genocide of Christians? Are the increasing catastrophes being met with indifference in the West because of mind-numbing overload? Or is end-time deception part of the reason? In Islamic Pakistan, less than 2% of the population are Christian although there are many more secret believers in Jesus. Pakistani law mandates that blasphemies against Islam are to be severely punished. At least a dozen Pakistani Christians have been given court death sentences and half a dozen have been lynched, murdered, after being accused of blasphemy. One Pakistani-American author has called treatment of Christians in Pakistan a drip-drip genocide. In the West, we have yet to experience the bravery it takes to stand up for one's faith under such hostile conditions. Asiya Bibi is a true heroine of Christianity, a beautiful and brave farm worker, a mother of five, who spent almost a decade on death row for a blasphemy crime she didn't commit. Although she was finally acquitted by Pakistan's Supreme Court, she continued to be held as a virtual prisoner in a safe house because the government caved in to extremist demands, still calling for her death. And a shocking development was that the UK denied her asylum for fear of upsetting its own Pakistani immigrants. Bibi's story is that she drank water from the same cup used by her fellow farmhands, but one of them said it was forbidden for a Christian to drink water from the same utensil. And so suddenly they demanded that Bibi convert to Islam. But she bravely responded, I believe in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the sins of all of mankind.
So why should it be me who converts instead of you? Well, that was too much raw truth to swallow. The villagers beat her severely in the presence of her children. Before being formally charged, she was imprisoned for over a year. With a verdict, Bibi became the first woman in Pakistan condemned to be hanged on blasphemy charges. The verdict was upheld by the Lahore High Court and received worldwide attention. Asiya Bibi described the day of her sentencing. She said, as I put my head in my hands, I heard the crowd give the judge a standing ovation. I was then thrown like an old sack of rubbish into a van. I had lost all humanity in their eyes. Her husband and children also received death threats and had to flee into hiding. According to Human Rights Watch, Asiya Bibi's situation is not unusual. Although no one has yet been officially executed in Pakistan for blasphemy, the accused often remain in prison for a long time while their cases are processed. Her case illustrates the extent to which blasphemy laws can be exploited to target minority communities. And tragically, Pakistan's minorities minister and the Punjab governor were both assassinated because they dared to advocate on her behalf against oppressive blasphemy laws. Well, with all of the persecution going on in the world, I believe it's vitally important to pray for Christians in the heart of Christianity in the Bible lands, because these are the countries in the Middle East where Christians are living witnesses to the veracity of the gospel. This is the church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, one if not the oldest churches in the Middle East dating back to St. Helena. And it's a monument to Bible prophecies fulfilled by Jesus when he was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, according to the Hebrew scriptures. I spoke with Father Rami, the Franciscan parish priest in Bethlehem, concerning the importance of supporting Christian communities in the Holy Land. You see, most believers in the West may not relate to Mideast Christians because they observe different church traditions. Yet these Eastern Christians are living witnesses to the truth of the gospel. As our friend Canon Andrew White, the vicar of Baghdad often says, here in the Middle East, because Christians have suffered so much, we aren't known by our denominations, we're simply known to one another as believers. So I encourage you to pray for and to support our Christian brothers and sisters in the Holy Land. And Father Rami explains why. In the Bible, uh, it is very famous that uh, started from there, that uh, in the act of apostles, uh, all Christians around the world was supporting the Christian of Jerusalem, the, the Holy Land. So it is used to be because uh, here is the fountain, here is the, the base. So we, it, it, the base is strong, oh, the Christianity uh, it will, will be continue to be strong, no? And uh, the message of faith, our faith will, be, will continue to be effective in all over the world with the, great, uh, the support of the, our, the Holy Spirit, sure. Terrorist groups such as ISIS have done their worst to try to eradicate the people of the cross. 
We watched the news in horror as Christian homes in Iraq were targeted and labeled. Then as our brothers and sisters were robbed, expelled, killed, kidnapped, raped, and humiliated shamefully. Syrian Christians have been affected by nearly a decade of conflict that's seen their homes destroyed, fathers martyred, hundreds of thousands displaced, and anti-Christian persecution from jihadists with threats, violence, and more kidnappings. Food has been insufficient and medical care inadequate. Brave journalists such as Italy's Guilio Matteo and Britain's Melanie Phillips have constantly reported that religious liberty, the core value of Western civilization, is being destroyed across large parts of the world. Yet the West seems to be averting its collective gaze by openly denying this religious war. Politicians took no issue with categorizing the events in Christchurch, New Zealand as terrorism, but in contrast, the words terrorism and Christianity failed to feature in much of the reaction to the horrendous Easter attacks on Christians in Sri Lanka. The death toll was shockingly high. 253 murdered, including 45 children amongst the victims, and more than 500 wounded. The jihadist attack was the deadliest attack on Christians in South Asia in recent memory and also the largest massacre of Christian children. The death toll would have been even higher without the swift action of a church member who confronted one of the suicide bombers at a church door, but who was himself killed as a result. The town is covered with posters of the Sunday school children who died in the blasts. Journalist Miato wrote that the silence of Western intelligentsia in the media is particularly deafening. He said that the new humanitarian conscience seems to see only two groups, those who have the right to compassion and protection of the international community, and those, such as Christians, who were deemed unworthy of help or solidarity. And if photographs of migrant children spur leaders to want to open wide their borders, what about photographs of murdered Christian children, such as the 45 killed in Sri Lanka? Who is championing their cause? Mayati observed that the deliberate murder of an eight-month-old baby named Matthew in a Sri Lankan church apparently didn't upset or chill the West because the baby's photo didn't go viral on social media. It didn't become a hashtag. It didn't push European crowds into public squares. It didn't press the Islamic world to examine its conscience. And it didn't induce Western politicians and opinion makers to reflect on who killed that child or on who fomented and financed the anti-Christian hatred. Entire Christian families were decimated in the attack. So where is the indignation in the West for the annihilation of Christian life and people? Dangerously, Islamic extremists have taken note that the West seems to be paralyzed to prevent them from repressing Christians, as if unconsciously there's a strange alignment between the West's silence and the ethnic cleansing aims of the jihadist. British author Melanie Phillips has gone so far as to daringly call this persecution of Christians 
the West's guilty secret. So far, the free world, and for long how free, is proving ineffectual. At least I was gratified to see that at an Advent service in London's Westminster Abbey, Prince Charles expressed his heartfelt concern for the plight of Christians in the Middle East. During the service, he said he's met many Christians who have inspired him by their faith and courage when battling oppression and persecution or when they're having to flee. Time and again, the prince said he had been deeply humbled and profoundly moved by the extraordinary grace and capacity for forgiveness among those who have suffered so much. Indeed, Christians are able to extend forgiveness to their oppressors. Humanly speaking, only the grace of the indwelling Spirit of Jesus makes such forgiveness possible. Also writing in the Telegraph over Holy Week, once again, Prince Charles said he's made a point of meeting people who've been persecuted. And he said he was immensely humbled by their lack of bitterness, enabling them to return to live in harmony with people of other faiths. So the gospel message with his emphasis on forgiveness and reconciliation gives hope to us all to see light overcoming darkness. Recently, my husband and I were privileged to minister once again in Egypt. The courage and faith of Egyptian Christians never ceases to draw my deep admiration. While I go to minister in Egypt, I offer solidarity and hope to believers. But in my mind, they have more to give than I have to impart to them. When it comes to persecution in Egypt, it's the same in places like Pakistan or Nigeria. One of the most common problems is a loss of income when a family's breadwinner is injured, imprisoned, or killed. The beleaguered family is forced to deal with finding a new source of income, but often these countries already make it difficult for Christians to obtain jobs in the first place. Christians often have lower class occupations such as cleaning, sweeping, garbage collecting, and in Pakistani, brick making on the level of child slavery. We've seen it. In Egypt, a Christian woman named Nawal was widowed after her husband was killed when his bus, which was headed for a monastery, was ambushed by terrorists. Nawal was left to care for their family of three young children and one of the children has special medical needs. But thankfully, there are Christian organizations that step in to help persecuted families get back on their feet financially. International Christian Concern provided Nawal with seven sheep to raise and to sell to support her family. CBN's Operation Blessing and many other humanitarian organizations are also looking after widows and orphans. And Jay Sekulow's American Center for Law and Justice helps many persecuted and grieving families to shoulder burdens of their legal expenses. According to the website persecution.org, China is historically known for its animosity towards Christianity. The Chinese government continues to encourage atheism and views Christianity as a threat, placing firm restrictions on the practice of Christianity. But despite these restrictions, the Chinese church continues to grow. Estimates by The Economist in Operation World 
placed the population of Christians at over 100 million now in China. In comparison, at the time of Chairman Mao's death in 1976, the number of Christians was less than 8 million. And there are many reasons for the shift. For example, China is actively sending workers throughout the globe, especially in Africa, where they are exposed to African Christianity, and many receive the Lord. Then they return to China and share the gospel message. While no religion and no community today is more persecuted than Christians, we have to say that anti-Semitism is also growing at alarming rates. So it seems the people of the book, the Saturday people and the Sunday people, are in the same boat of persecution together. Why then this silence by the West? Journalist Guilio Miati says that, are we all so short-sighted that we hope to buy peace with jihadists at the cost of abandoning our Judeo-Christian heritage? The same jihadi ideology that murdered Christian children in Sri Lanka has also targeted European children in places like Nice, Manchester, and Barcelona. Meanwhile, violent attacks on Jews and Jewish targets around the world are on the rise as documented in a new report by the Cantor Center for the Study of Contemporary European Jewelry. According to the study, which was released in cooperation with the European Jewish Congress, the number of major violent cases globally jumped last year by 13%, with 387 reported incidents. More than 100 violent attacks happened in the United States. According to the annual survey, there were more anti-Semitic incidents in Britain last year than in any other recent year. The report said that there is an increasing sense of emergency among Jews in many countries around the world. In fact, anti-Semitism has recently progressed to the point of calling into question the very continuation of Jewish life in many parts of the world. There's a rising feeling of insecurity amongst Jewish people in the diaspora, not only a feeling of physical insecurity, but also a feeling of doubting that they belong to the society around them. As we saw with the second mass shooting of a synagogue in the United States recently, many parts of the world that were previously regarded as safe for Jewish people no longer are. The study also noted that in France, violent anti-Semitic incidences rose 74% over the previous year. They rose 59% in Australia and 60% in Italy. Well, the most vile persecution of Jews during the Holocaust has certainly been well documented. But when it comes to information concerning the persecution of Jews, I'm constantly amazed at how most people don't know anything about the mass expulsion of Jews who once lived in Arab lands. The inconvenient truth about Mizrahi Eastern Jews is that hundreds of thousands of these Jews were cruelly torn from their homes and possessions. Whole communities of Eastern Jews underwent expulsion, persecution, and malicious liquidations. Their assets were seized. Their businesses and homes were confiscated. In the mid-20th century, they found themselves homeless 
and penniless, but thankfully for them, there was an Israel. They found refuge in Israel, which at the time was a poor, struggling new country. Many of these Mizrahi Jews had to survive in tents and primitive conditions for months, if not years. Ignorance of Jewish refugees from Arab lands extends even to policymakers at the highest level. People seem surprised whenever I mention that Jews had lived in sizable numbers in the Middle East and North Africa before Israel's independence. In fact, up to the 17th century, there were more Jews in the Arab and wider Muslim world than in Europe. In Baghdad in 1939, for example, 33% of the population were Jews, making it at the time proportionately more Jewish than Warsaw or New York. Jews had lived in Baghdad since the destruction of Jerusalem's first temple. Before they were driven out en masse, the Jews of the Arab world, like Jews in Europe, were often important figures in their society. There were 38,000 Jews in Western Libya before 1945. Now there are none. In Algeria, there were 140,000 Jews. Now there are none. In Iraq, there were more than 150,000 Jews. Reportedly, only five remain. And there were 80,000 Jews in Egypt. Almost all of them are gone. Palestinian refugees who fled the Holy Land at the orders of their leaders, who had intended to wipe out the Jews, well, they are well known, but nobody seems to know much about the 800,000 Jews who remain refugees from the Arab countries. These Jewish refugees have never received any proper recognition or international financial help. Today, the only Middle Eastern state where Jews and Arabs live together in any numbers is Israel. It's been said that policymakers have formed a lopsided view of the conflict by ignoring the plight of Jewish refugees and concentrating only on Palestinian refugees. You see, there are two sets of suffering, both Jewish and Arab, and this must be prayerfully acknowledged by everybody involved. So can you see why the ministry of prayer is so very vital and key in these last days? We need God to intervene in these matters, and he does intervene in response to the prayers of his people. And in our ministry, we want to put even more emphasis now upon prayer. In the end, for Christians, the Lord has promised that in the world we'll always be confronted with conflicts and tribulations. But he encouraged us to be of good cheer because he overcame death in the world. And so when we trust the Lord, we can be confident that we will have all of eternity to dwell with him in righteousness and safety. That's why the Bible promises that all who call upon the name of the Lord, upon the name of the Savior, shall be saved and delivered from eternal perdition. Amen. And in the meantime, I want to encourage you that all of our videos are available at any time for your edification at our website at exploits.tv, where you can also click online to receive our color magazine exploits based upon Daniel 11.32. That verse declares that the people who know their God will be strong and carry out exploits. In other words, will take action and accomplish the works of the Lord in our generation. 
You'll also find details of our unforgettable Holy Land conferences at our website. And let's stay in touch through social media. And don't forget to invite your friends to watch our programs. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Daring. Shalom and Maranatha.